When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, somebody who's been around and working to try to make improvements for as long as I have can look at the glass half empty and half full. The half full comes from seeing the progress that has been made. And that's very important in the form of individuals like Ursula, African-Americans who blaze through a system with a lot of bias in it where they might not have felt at home. The half empty is after all this time, how important and major systemic inequities still exist. And they're not recognized by everybody, even with all the data and evidence that's around. Making improvements in this area of race is challenging, very challenging, but we can't give up and we've got to learn how to do it better. I'm optimistic based on history that we can survive and thrive. I am pessimistic based on current leaders and structures that we are courageous enough to break them and rebuild. You know, the systems, it's a lot to do. I mean, it's a lot to do. But the one thing that we cannot allow to happen is that we shut up, that we stop pushing, because then we know what the answer is going to be. The outcome is then determined. So what I do is I literally try to agitate positively on the edges, knowing one additional person, learning about another. It sounds so trite, but it adds up. Speak, engage, help, be help, be part of society, be an optimist towards the fact that people can change, that people can learn. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show for Black History Month, we're featuring a chat on race with Ursula Burns and John Pepper, two accomplished CEOs, with Ursula being one of America's first black female CEOs and John Pepper, the former CEO and chairman of P&G, as well as former chairman of the Walt Disney Company. He's known as one of the great people focus leaders and is a great philanthropist in his own right. I've known John from afar my entire professional career, and because of launching the P&G Alumni Podcast, not only have I had the chance to have John on the podcast multiple times, but I've developed a bit of a friendship with him, which has been an unexpected perk and privilege from all the work that I put into all these podcasts. John Pepper is all about transformational relationships, and he called me one day after listening to the podcast wanting to tackle another topic, race. But John didn't want to do it alone. He decided to bring along Ursula Burns, the former CEO of Xerox and one of the first black female CEOs. I didn't know Ursula because she never worked at P&G, but it turned into a powerful conversation from early 2022 that covers a topic that we actually float around the edges of on this Modern Minorities podcast from a more personal level. Now, having a conversation about race at such a macro level by two great business leaders was a real treat. John, welcome back to Learnings from Leaders. Thank you so much for joining us again. Good to be here. Thank you. 
So John, as we've been chatting recently offline, and as folks can read on your Pet Perspectives blog, it's no surprise that you wanted to have a deeper, more nuanced conversation on race in America. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) And there's so many topics, so many things in the world to be talking about. Why uh, do you think that's an important conversation for us to continue to be having? Because it feels like we've been having it for so long, increasingly so in the past couple of years. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to come back to it is the very fact that we've been talking it for so long. Mm and try to address what we've learned during that period of time, what's held us back, where do we need to go next, where do we have challenges, where do we have hope. In thinking about this, I quickly concluded I didn't want to do this alone. People have heard from me, and I wanted to be able to do this with somebody I respected who would have a a very different perspective in many ways, maybe not in others, uh, but I knew it would be informed, and I felt pretty sure it would be inspiring too. And I thought of Ursula, who I've known for many, many years, Ursula Burns, who's been kind enough to join us today, and I'm very glad about that. Ursula, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Anything for John Pepper. As he said, he and I have known each other for many years. This is one of these true connections where you don't speak often, but whenever you speak, there is a total and complete pause and silence for everyone around except for the conversation that we're having. So I'm very pleased to be here today. Well, for those of you who do not know, Ursula Burns is the retired chairman and CEO of the Xerox Corporation and Beyond Limited. She's also a founding partner of Integrum Holdings, the non-executive chairman of Tenio Holdings, and the executive chairman of Plum Acquisition Corp. While at Xerox, Ursula served from 2009 to 2017, having actually joined as a summer intern in 1980, after which she rose through the ranks across corporate services, manufacturing, and product development. Ursula, it's a privilege to have both you and John join our Learnings from Leaders podcast. Thank you so much again for joining. I'm pleased to be here. So I've got to ask Ursula, when we set out to have these conversations, John was very quick to mention your name specifically, given your past work together and conversations, not just in the space, but in the industry, interacting with each other out there in in the world. I would love to hear first, how did you guys actually meet? And what were those first impressions of each other when you met John, Ursula? So I was an employee and executive for sure, but not not the CEO of Xerox, and John was on the board mm-hmm. of our company. And I met him when he was in the company, I was in the company. That's why I met him, met him first. We have at Xerox a long standing relationship with P&G in that we've had John, we've had Bob McDonald, who was also had at, on our board at one time or, or the other. I think we had another uh, P&G executive as well. So um, that's where I met him. I, I don't remember exactly the first time, but it was in the halls of the Halo, of the old Haloid company, which is now the new Xerox company. <laughs> and what was your impressions of John? I mean, we all have John Pepper stories, uh, impressions and recollections, but uh, what led you to maybe not that first conversation, but made you want to have a second or a third as the years went yeah, on? Yeah, you know, John, John is, I have, a, I have a, a word that I call people who I respect um, a lot who are sent, very centered, and I call them Boy Scouts. <laughs> what <I> mean, <laughs> and what I mean, that's not, that is not a derogatory term. In this no, way. not at it's all. It's a very, very honorable position to be in. He is clear, calm, and I mean, and when I say, and, I'm, and righteous, and when I say righteous, I don't mean overbearingly uh, right and wrong, mm. but the clarity and the consistency of everything from how you build a brand to what good looks like, mm. to how you treat people. This mm. is just a, a clear road, um, all on the right space, right all on the right side. So he's a, good, he's a good guy to follow, a good guy to know, and a good guy to follow. Um, yeah, it's, so that's how I met him. 
It's funny. I sometimes call that in my own era of the world, uh, superhero morality. It's very yeah. clear on where you're going with it. I like the Boy Scout thing too. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, John, I, I got to ask, I, I mean, you were very quick to recommend Ursula. I'd love to hear your take on when you first met her, your impressions of her and what led to that second, third, fourth, and this longstanding friendship you guys have. No, I think the reason I jumped on her name so quickly is the underlying single word would be respect for her in who she is and what she believes. As I think about the interaction I had at Xerox and my memories and what it used to be, dominant there is my regard for for Ursula's courage. And she's got real guts. And she calls them as she sees them. Another is her strategic sense, being willing to go a different direction that needed to be done at a time. Another would simply be some element, I would say, of awe A-W-E, awe, to see how uh, she had progressed and become the CEO. And one reaction to that was, why didn't we do this before? But that often is our reaction to the advancement of an individual like like Ursula. She was the first Black African-American person at this senior executive level I'd ever seen. And to have come up and navigated that company the way she did, and then in that job, get it turned around and going in the right direction. And believe me, this was tough, very tough. Elicited a great grade of admiration. Uh, the other would just be the what I've learned over time is her sheer decency, her commitment to good causes, which, of course, she's done after she's left Xerox in one way after another. So I, I knew all that experience and all that character that she has was was there and what and who she was. So it was really pretty simple. What strikes me more than any single act is her character and who she is. Thank you, John. Well, that sets us up for a pretty interesting conversation because we're here to talk about race. And it is a it's a charged topic. Sometimes I wonder why does it have to be charged? But then other times when we have these deep conversations, you recognize that it is because everyone has a different background that they bring to it. So I want to dive right in. John Ursula, you've both been corporate leaders for the better part of my, honestly, and most of our listeners' lives from the 80s to the early 2000s. Before, honestly, some of us came to our own awakening and experience with it. I, I guess, John, I want to ask you first, what would you say Where did you first start thinking more concretely about race in your corporate career, in your personal life, in your leadership journey? It's come in stages for sure. When I joined P&G in 1963, I wouldn't have known what the word diversity even meant, Hmm. let alone attaching it to race. I did learn pretty quickly about how far away we were. I learned that the first black manager at P&G had only been hired the year before I joined the company. Mm. Only one year before. I learned probably five or six years after joining the company that the preeminent public high school in Cincinnati, Walnut Hills, allowed black children to only swim on Friday. And then they washed out the pool and only allowed the pool to be used by whites on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And there were other examples of what I was seeing. I hired the first woman, full-time woman, into marketing in 1967. And that's under the heading of gender bias, gender equality. Mm. It's unbelievable. A company is selling most of its products to women, Mm. not having hired people directly into marketing. I learned about diversity, uh, including race, but also ethnicity, really in 
the area of field of education, working in volunteer work, as we were trying to develop educational programs for Appalachian and African-Americans, and quickly saw that if it was just a bunch of white guys around the table, it would be a hopeless task. Hmm. And then I learned in Europe with p and in 1974, how our English employees, these are all employees, general managers, looked down on the French employees. And the French looked at the Italians as taking the day off about noon on Friday, which was true. Biases, biases. And they looked at the Germans as Teutonic monsters. This separation dumbfounded me. So I came to the view, if we were going to have the best people, and that's all it is, it all gets down to people and values, we had to be able to be a home for and be able to recruit men and women of different gender and definitely of different races. Hmm. And we weren't doing it. So starting in that period of time, in the probably seriously in the second half of the 70s, over 40 years ago, I became devoted to this with increasing levels of knowledge, I would say is a fundamental requirement. Not something that's nice to do. Now, it continued to be just something nice to do, mm. to be clear, for many, many years. Something you did after you worked on the business. Mm. And that's changed. But I got into this, and I look back on it, and I'll just close with this. Somebody has been around at my age and been working to try to make improvements in this area for as long as I have, can look at the glass half empty and half full. The half full comes from seeing the progress that has been made. And that's very important in the form of individuals like Ursula, many at Procter & Gamble, African-Americans who blazed through courage and been able to make it through a system with a lot of bias in it where they might not have felt at home welcome. That's the half full, also greater, much greater awareness. The half empty, and maybe we'll come back to this later, is after all this time, how important and major systemic inequities still exist. And they're not recognized by everybody, even to this day, even with all the data and evidence that's around, which says making improvements in this area of race is challenging, very challenging, but we can't give up and we've got to learn how to do it better. That's a quick course of almost 50 years. <laughs> Ursula, I have to ask the same of you. I mean, as a black woman, what was your experience rising through the corporate ranks throughout your career? I mean, you were seeing it from a very different perspective, living a very different experience. Not just what were those early experiences as you were starting out, but what were the changes you saw along the way? Or frankly, once you came into leadership positions, you started to advocate for and try to make? It's interesting that the start of John's response and the path of John's response it's interesting how fundamentally different the beginning of the conversation of my response, which I'll get to in a minute, mm -hmm, is, mm -hmm. and how towards the end it converges to the same exact spot. Right? Mm -hmm. For so the beginning for me, there is no I didn't know about race. All I knew of about course. was yeah. race, right? Yeah. But it, it's an interesting thing. It's not that I knew about race as a, a divider. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that. I knew about race because people reminded me of race. I lived mm -hmm. in a place that was fairly monolithic. The thing that was common was poverty. So we had poor Black people. We had some poor Hispanic people. We had some poor Jewish white people. Mm -hmm. And we coalesced around that commonality and didn't discuss and fight race at that point because it wasn't the issue. Mm -hmm. But I knew I was a Black woman. I knew that the, there were Hispanic 
women and men, and I knew that they were Jewish mm-hmm. women and men. But that differentiation, the differentiation and the lack of coalescence was not because of race at that point. We, conversely, we coalesced about the fact that we didn't have a lot. It was socioeconomic. Socioeconomic, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And as I got more engaged with broader society, meaning mm-hmm. as I got out of that socioeconomic neighborhood, which was poverty, mm-hmm. and moved on, race became the number one discussion point. Why? This is something I thought I think a lot about, right? And my, my perspective has changed over time. But I think that I'm settling in on the following. When you have things, generally, you don't want to give them up. And I think it's literally as simple as mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. actually believe in this world, this country, I'll, I'll say it this country, that the world is a zero-sum game. We actually believe that there's a fixed amount, or we're being taught, mm-hmm. that there's a fixed amount of goodness out there, a fixed amount of wealth out there, there's a fi- whatever it is, fixed amount of great food or power. And if I have it today, and... I don't want to give any of it up because if I give it up, it's literally giving it up. I mean, I'm literally mm-hmm. going to give it up. Mm-hmm. So I can't step back and look at inequity because if I try to drive equality, the only way to get there in a zero-sum game is that the person who has it has less in the mm-hmm. future mm-hmm. and they give it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has become the way and it's become more and more common. It is the way that we govern today. If you look at the last, not this administration, but the administration before that, literally, the the discussion was about we can't have them have it. They can't have it. I, I talk about board diversity a lot, and I get the following thing, but they're going to give up their spots. And I say, their spots, they own the spots. Mm-hmm. So they, so people actually, it's almost like I have this stuff. It's mine, mm-hmm. and I can't have you have it because there's no more. If I have you have it, then I have to have less. Mm-hmm. And you said something earlier that was, there is not a realization that the fundamental system, the structure mm-hmm. of society, particularly North American society, mm-hmm. the structure of our society was built on the back of people being treated less like humans than others. Mm-hmm. This is women. It's clearly a structure, laws, still Mm -hmm. written into the law of many states, that Black people are worth less. Mm -hmm. They are tools for a white person to get more. Mm -hmm. That women... So we have to... I've lived through this whole awakening, myself (laughs) and others, from the perspective of it can't be a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. It it can't... Because if it's a zero-sum game... And by the way, we know it's not true, right? Mm Because when... John started, I was like six or seven, five years old. Right? So, <laughs> you stopped talking, John. So a little bit of difference in age, but when I was five years old, there were, there were three billion less people in the world. Think yeah. about it. Yeah. I mean, if it was zero sum game, we would have been burning the furniture already. Yeah. We're not, right? We've expanded, <laughs> we've pie. expanded yeah. the pie capabilities. We've, we've expanded wealth. We've expanded health. Mm. We've expanded education and net net we know that there is a way to continue to expand, right? We have mm-hmm. to do some fixing. But so one is, I think that we still are operating on this, it's mine, and if I give it up, I'll have less and that person will have more and I don't want to ever have less. Mm-hmm. The second is that I've been thinking a lot about slavery mm-hmm. and read a lot of books about it and try to understand 
a similar thing. I've read a lot about the Holocaust, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I've not as much about Native Americans and how they're treated, but the ability of a human to treat another human as badly mm-hmm. as we did in these examples of the Holocaust, of mm-hmm. slavery, of mm-hmm. how we treated Native Americans, and I'm sure, you know, what's going on is an amazing thing that we have to figure out a way to temper. And we don't spend enough time on this. How do we train people to be good humans? We train people to be good scientists. We train them to be great farmers. But we don't train them early enough to understand that there is a value fundamental in every individual in the world. We actually train just a different, only the strongest survive. All of these things that we actually do drive a wedge in between. And it's a combination of greed, this zero-sum game, and this fundamental inability for us to actually identify that this other person that's sitting across from me is a human as well. Now, religion tries to do some of this, but that's almost a curse word now. You can't, I mean, you talk about religion in any structured environment, companies, mm-hmm. <laughs> in schools, in government, it's almost like you can't have this discussion. Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. But somewhere we have to have the discussion of, I said earlier, John is a Boy Scout. And what I meant by that, I think I tried to explain it, is that there is a goodness, a clarity around his value and other people's value in his actions and how he treats people, how he interacts with, how he deals with problems, how he integrates solutions. We don't train that at all. We actually train something very different right, to that. So anyway, race has become a lightning rod because too many people fit in the excluded category, right? And it's not only race, it's gender, it's ethnicity. Too many people sit outside the circle and everybody looks at the circle and says, that's a good place to be. I want to be there. And if we don't figure out a way to get more people in, not necessarily financially only, it's power, it's ideas, it's worth in society, everything. Belonging, societal belonging. Belonging, societal belonging. And, And the last thing is, one of the things that I say a lot as well is that we, the one thing that Black people have in this country, race has any race and some categories of ethnicity and definitely mm-hmm. gender is it's really easy to pick you out in the crowd, mm-hmm. right? And you look different, right? <laughs> we look fundamentally different. We have different norms and habits, mm-hmm. not necessarily counter, just a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And so we are not considered equal because the norm is here. We're considered less. We're considered deviants to that. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, women were as well. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and I think largely still are, but they're making a little bit more progress in the world, which is good. They, and this is they, I'm a woman. (laughs) I say say they, and this is another big discussion that I'm going to, I've been writing a lot about, which is this identification. Why is it that when people say to me, when Barack Obama was running against Hillary Clinton Mm -hmm. in the primaries, Mm -hmm. I was a Hillary Clinton supporter, insanely a Hillary Mm -hmm. Clinton supporter. Mm -hmm. And literally people would say to me, you're supporting Hillary. My God, you. <laughs> but you're black, you right? Support, yeah. Right, but yeah. you're black. Yeah. Why aren't you supporting Barack? And I said, interesting question, but I'm a woman. <laughs> <laughs> but literally, the thing, the fundamental, and I call it the lowest, the least valued common denominator is mm. the race, mm-hmm. right? And then you move up from there. And that example, what people always say to me, my God, I thought you would identify with being black. You can't possibly identify with being a woman <laughs> or being black. And, I, and it, it is, how do you defend that? You say, well, yeah. okay, fine, I'm fine. I, pick, I, I can only pick one on one day. I can right? only pick like, one yeah. on one day. Anyway, anyway I'm, I'm rambling, but I, I just think we're at a point 
John said it where there's not much place, there's no place else to go but up. We have yeah. been at this for a long time. We have made some progress. We are entirely too smart and too capable and too dangerous to each other. We have lots of tools to destroy each other. Mm -hmm. We know that we can do that. We know how to do that, right? We know how to destroy each other. And I tell you what, it's better to not do that. Mm -hmm. So if what we have to do, and more and more people are starting to realize that, mm -hmm. that what we have to do is try to figure out a way to get along, mm -hmm. to get along. And, and we don't have to get along by all of us giving up who we are. You can fit in places and keep some of your identity. I mean, we've proven that all over the place. And we've, I think, reverted back in the last couple of years to a not so great a place. Well, and that, that, that's what I want to ask about, Ursula, because it feels like something changed more recently, right? In the last four to five years, maybe it was because the markets were frothy. So we're all living in the water and just denying that something was wrong. But in the last few years, um, it feels like we're more at risk of getting off track. Maybe that's just my youthful pessimism. Every generation feels like it's the worst. <laughs> by any measure, we, we were talking about this earlier, by any measure, we're better off. But with the rise of tech, I feel like we have lost ground almost faster than at any rate, be it the women's or minority rights, despite all the advancements. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah, we have lost ground. I don't care what we are better off in mass. Yeah, but from the 1900s, of, the, of course. Like, yeah. yeah, some of the more nuanced, more intellectually challenging spaces is where we've lost ground. Uh, we've, we've, we, yeah, we can actually get food to more people in the world, right? Tech has helped us do that. Mm -hmm. We can communicate a message quicker than ever before. Tech has helped us do that. The ability to fundamentally live together in a way that we have respect for each other and and work towards a common good has definitely moved back. Here's why, I think. One is tech. It, it's when the Nobel brothers created dynamite, right? After it was done, they realized, well, they were forced to realize that this thing is dangerous in addition to be helpful. So it had to be governed in such a way that you could mitigate some of the dangers, right? The risks, right? Some of the risks. What we have done with technology is we've created dynamite with absolutely little, with very little, in, up until very recently, controls, governance, infrastructure, decency, infrastructure. The one, we just let it go. And I blame tech companies for that. I blame governments for that. You know, and I blame adults for it. Like mm. the adults all in us, society, all, of us, all right? of us. We screwed this up. That's one. Number two, this 1% thing has gotten totally out of hand. Meaning there is really a 1%. Mm. <laughs> The 1% is unbelievably powerful. They are in voice, in influence. They are unbelievably powerful in the amount of money, the capacity that they have in their own hands to literally sway anything normal, elections, distribution of food, distribution of anything. This 1% has become a power that is unaware of the other 99%. It seems like they're unaware of the other 99%. Unfortunately, the other 99% can see the 1%. And they're getting farther and farther and farther away from the ability to even get, even get close, be in the same universe as these people who are very privileged, who have so much, who control so much, who have... That's the second thing. This divide is huge and it's growing. When you look at real wages, right? It's real wages since 1982, I think it is, to now, the 1% has quadrupled, has improved by 
increase their value, everything across it's, it's orders of magnitude larger by oh. thousand. No, 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 it's, it's like not even it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the 99% has had literal wage stagnation, mm-hmm. like 8% increase in, in 20, 30 years. That can't, that's the rest of the second. People are struggling. And then the third piece is that we have had the leaders of the world lose decorum and allow conversations to happen that should never happen in public. It's like the parents in the household cursing out the kids and then expecting the kids to go outside and treat their neighbors differently. Mm. All they know how to do is curse, to belittle. So we have had, I I know this is not going to be popular, but we had a leader for four years that literally, before you think about policy, my mother would not have allowed him in the house to speak to their children, to her children, because it wasn't decent. The tone wasn't decent. When you allow that, when we accept that, when a party and a nation and a people say, yeah, 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 we can live with that, then what you do is you open up to the people a whole additional way to show your anger, your joy, all kinds of things, and it's not good. The accepted norm shift. Accepted norm shift. It's really bad. It's really bad. I mean, it's like when I was growing up, if we cursed in our house, if you said a curse word, and you know, who the heck cares if you curse in your house? Mm. My mother cared. Mm. Most parents cared, right? Because it, you did, it was just a way for us to be civil with each other mm. that you wanted to train into people. And I understand now with all this modern freedom, you may not want to do that, but I think we still need that. When you have 7 billion people in the world who are, not all alike. You need to have some rules of the road and how you interact. They were all torn away. Four years, we just literally ripped them down. If you're not able enough, if you're less able, if you have less mental capacity, huh? if you're a different color, huh? if you come from, you, and we'll talk about that out loud. I'll tell you about that out loud. And you can't do anything about it. So now literally, it's the norm. I walk up and down the streets. It's amazing. The, the things that people say to each other that we would never say before. That's mm. the crumbling of what I call the knitting together of society. We actually pulled the thread and it's still unraveling. And I think that that's a dangerous place to be. John, I want to turn to you. I mean, past several years, what have you seen? Not just, it's been a long few years. (laughs) Well, I've seen really what Ursula has so vigorously described, some trends here that I think are really breeding on the challenge we've all had as human beings and probably always will have, and that is a tendency to lift ourselves up by comparing ourselves to somebody else. The we versus them syndrome, which is alive and well and killing people as I speak to you today in Ukraine. And I think this has been elevated in the last four or five years, whatever it is, by a couple of things, and Merciless has touched on them. One has been a dramatic decline in trust. A decline in trust in institutions, the government, the media, religion, you name it. I also worry, not to say that religion is the only path to moral goodness, it's not, but to many of us, including me, it's a big help. And the involvement in religion has gone down dramatically. And I worry about that. I really do. And it's up to churches and synagogues to provide a message that will bring more people in. But that's a concern. The polarization, which is coming from the trust, is just very dramatic. Now, we've been polarized as a country before. We certainly were at the time of Civil War. There was a lot of disagreement. You were for slavery against it. And that was a do or die matter and turned out to be just that. 
But we're polarized today like we weren't before on issues that carry a moral hashtag. If you're for guns rights or not against guns rights, that makes you a good or a bad person. Can't argue about the policy anymore. Try to come to some compromise view or common sense view. And I won't go through others. We all know what they are, but we're polarized. It calls for a unifying message. That's what I think President Biden has set out to try to do. It's been very, very difficult. I won't belabor that. Oh, he's trying to do it now. And it's always been sad to me that it takes the time of real crisis to bring people together, but it often has. But I also think it comes down to each one of us in our own world of getting back to really what Ursula has talked about, and that is relationships so you can start to understand another person as a fellow human being. I happen to believe we're all children of God. Whether you are or not, we're all human beings. <laughs> and, and, we're on, and we're all on a journey of life. And we don't know how long it's going to be. It could end tomorrow. It could go for another, well, for you young people, many, 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 many years. But we know it's a journey. And if we can understand each other, we're going to be able to make it better ourselves and maybe help them too. And the biggest outage that I think exists, and COVID has hurt this badly for the last two years, but it didn't begin then, and it's no excuse for the future, is we're not spending enough time just knowing one another's stories as individuals, our challenges, our hopes, our dreams, our families. And this technology, which Ursula has talked about, has magnified this. The technology has tended to, to make us more virtual. We're not together as much. And certainly with COVID, we haven't been able to be in many cases. I worry about that greatly in terms of a company like Procter & Gamble, like like Xerox. We've got a lot of young people join Procter & Gamble, probably Xerox today, and they're there for 18 months and they haven't actually been in a room where they've seen compatriots. Mm-hmm. How do you build relationships just on Zoom. Well, if I know Ursula, I know you, Ramon, I can continue. But it takes work to do it. Yeah, it's work, but it actually can be fun. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) It can be inspiring, which is what I've been fortunate enough to do. I've been a very lucky person in this whole area of race. I'd say gender too, but that started with my wife. But in race, I've been very fortunate to know firsthand men and women who, as some of them have challenged me, told me things that they didn't think I knew, and they were right. I didn't. They were being looked down on, how they felt they had to fit in. But so many others I've seen and learned from because they could do things I couldn't do much better than I could. That only comes from relationships, right? Only through relationships. And I think in terms of what I can do at my ripe old age can make a difference. Certainly, I think first on the list would be try to form more intentional relationships with people. That, no, that let them feel they matter. I might divert here just for one story that I'll never forget. And I don't know if you knew this gentleman, Ursula, Lloyd Ward. And Lloyd Ward was the senior general manager at P&G. He was the first general manager to lead one of our business categories, dishwashing. And I learned he was going to leave the company. I don't know if I was president or not. I wasn't CEO yet. And I said, he can't leave until I see him. I've got to talk to him. So I met him, and actually, it was New Year's Day before he left, and I couldn't convince him to stay, and he left, and he went to PepsiCo. Well, I felt like I had something torn out of my hide, but he left. And he came back some years later and asked me if I'd be given some career advice. I said, Lloyd, I'd love to, and I'd love to just see you again. So we met at Morton's Restaurant here in Cincinnati, and I gave him whatever advice I could, and I hope it was helpful. He went on, I don't know if it was right away, to become head of Maytag. And um, I asked him at the end, I said, Lloyd, is there anything I could have said to you 
that, or anyone could have said that would have led you to stay with P&G said, no, John, at that point, I don't think there was. I felt that you had, uh, and all of you had advanced my career pretty darn well. I knew you respected me, thought you liked me, but I couldn't stay. And the reason was, and this is what I'll never forget. He said, I didn't feel in the house. That hit me like a bullet because I had been made to feel so in the house or I wouldn't have been with Procter & Gamble post the first year. When my boss asked me to his house for dinner with his wife, I wasn't married yet. Not once, but two times. In fact, a third time. And I was starting to think, how can I make a proper excuse? Because I wanted to do something <laughs> else. In any event, that was embedded in this in the house. I'm having people feel in the house. They're recognized. They're seen. They're respected. They're listened to. All the things that make you feel in the house and which allow you to become authentic yourself. You know, I can, I can chant some risky things because I'm on sound ground. So, yeah, I, I've seen those challenges uh, that come up and they're real. And I don't know how to turn some of them around, like what's in religion and getting this trust back in this country. If you went back to 1965, about 80 percent of the American public would say they trusted the government to do what was right or try to do what was right. That number today is 18. Wow. Think of that. Okay, so what do we need to do? We've got to build trust in our own environments. Company like Parker & Gamble, like Xerox, any company has the opportunity to build within its walls a sense of trust and of belonging. And people look for it more than ever. More than ever today, we all look, I do, for things we can hang on to, starting with our family, of course. But then what else can we do? And what can we do to help other people feel they're trusted? So... You can't give up. Of course, you can't give up. If abolitionists had given up in this country in the 1830s, 1840s, they would have given up. And it was a good reason to give up. Slavery was expanding even as they fought against it. So there are a lot of lessons from history. We all know what they are, but we need to remind ourselves of them to keep going when things look tough because progress is possible. Look at the LGBTQ movement. Would you have believed I wouldn't have, and it's still under assault in some quarters, that we would have had the change that we've had in the last 15, 20 years in the acceptance of people with different sexual preferences. No, I wouldn't have. I was brought up a Catholic. I thought it was a mortal sin. You'd go to hell if you engaged in such activity. How wrong I was. It's a great example, John. It's a great example. Yeah. It gives me hope, Ursula. Um, race is, is tougher. I think we know that it's visible and it's got slavery in the heritage, all those things that, you know, in a way I never will, but it, uh, it is hopeful. Well, I, I think if I summarize the things I've heard from both of you is, and maybe this is oversimplifying it, but I think a lot of our, our thinking and a lot of our influence has to come from three different layers. There's the individual layer, the individual relationships. And if you stay in your own bubble, your family, your friends, your neighborhood versus people who look different from you, people who have different experiences, that empathy and understanding that comes at the different level by standing at the bus stop with someone who looks different, being at the grocery store with someone that looks different, working with someone that looks different or uh, looks different, has a different experience, socioeconomically, race, uh, gender, religion, community and culture, right? Honestly, I think a lot of our values come from that, be it religious or otherwise, community groups, 
coming together to work through things. I think that's where a lot of our values are instilled. But then, and Ursula, this is something you spoke to a lot. Um, institutions and leaders set the tone. What is allowable? The parent analogy is so good because I can say, I can put anything in writing for my young daughter who's six, but she's listening to me. She's watching mm-hmm. how I behave. When mm-hmm. I lose my temper, my wife pulls me aside at night. She's like, you wonder why your daughter's losing her temper. She's paying attention to you. So I think our, our leaders, if, if I am a child in our society with corporate leaders, with uh, mm-hmm. political leaders, like we're all subconsciously paying attention and mirroring these behaviors, whether or not we want to or not, because they're setting the tone for what's acceptable and what's not. Um, so I, I want to talk about the future with both of you. We've we spent a little bit of time talking about this present moment and diagnosing it. I'm not sure if I should be cautiously optimistic or worried. I want to, Ursula, what's the risk if we do nothing? I I, I just, because yeah. <laughs> sometimes it feels like it's just like, yeah, what? I'm just going to go listen to my podcast. I'm just going to yeah. go do my work, work on that next thing I'm doing and let other people sort it out. Yeah, I think the risk of doing nothing is the world tending towards chaotic skirmishes. And some of those skirmishes are hugely, they're huge, right? Massive, right? Nations fighting nations, governments fighting their people, Syria, those kinds of things. But also just look at the United States over-policing in neighborhoods, just this chaotic skirmishes. We'll still have people in the world. It'll be less comfortable for many and more comfortable for a very small few. And I just don't think that that's, good or sustainable or going to be fun. I don't, I don't think the world's going to end. I just don't think it's going to be a lot more fun as, as we go forward. We could right. be in a better place. So I think chaotic skirmishes. And I think that there will be, we are tending towards the need for significantly more control and aggression to keep people in line. We're seeing it all over the place. And that is what's troubling to me because we'll see, it exists. We've had society like this before, when you look at the civil rights movement, what you know, you literally moved people into areas and controlled them in those areas. And, and then they couldn't go to other areas and other people kept out of those areas. People think, I talk about this part a lot and, and just look at what's happening. If we don't actually figure out a way to mix it up a bit and not mm-hmm. have, and to understand, you said it, to understand how we all have to, how we all can play together. We're going to have a world that's okay. The more money you have, it'll be good. The less money you have, you'll be controlled and contained. Mm. And there'll be skirmishes, a whole bunch of them. Russia, the Ukraine, and this person and that person. Well, yeah, you'll make it. But the real problems of the world, the warming of the earth, the killing of the earth, all those things will be on the back burner. <laughs> Eventually, we won't be able to fix them, right? So right. I think that, it, that we, I am optimistic that that... I'm optimistic based on history that we can survive and thrive. I am pessimistic based on current leaders and and structures that we are courageous enough to break them and rebuild. The systems, Uh, right. Yeah, the systems. It's a lot to do. I mean, it's a lot to do. But uh, the thing I say most mornings, I say whenever I speak in public, is that if the one thing that we cannot allow to happen is that we shut up, that mm. we stop pushing, because then we know what the answer is going to be. And the outcome is then determined. So what I do is I literally try to agitate positively on the edges and show. John said it. This idea about you know, saving a penny 
every day. You know, it, it adds up after a while in your life. Get, knowing one additional person, you know, learning about an, another. Mm-hmm. This is all. It sounds so trite, but it adds up. Yeah, it adds up. Speak, engage, help, be helped, be part of society, be an optimist towards the fact that people can change, that you, that, that people can learn. That's how you keep it going on a go forward basis. And I'm living in this great place. Look at where I started. Hmm. Look at where I started. It was because people thought about me differently than other people thought about me. Hmm. And that one person, two people, three people, John Pepper, John, Vernon Jordan, you, know, you name it, all of these people said, ah, she looks pretty sharp. Let's, let's, you know, I'm not going to spend all my time with her, but hey, when I'm with her, I'm going to give her a little bit of wisdom and a little right. bit of opportunity. Well, this is how the world is made, right? John, I think we spent a lot of time talking about what keeps us up at night. What are you excited about here? What gives you a little bit of hope as we look to the future? I think what I'm most encouraged by is, one, the just the human capacity of individuals to make progress through thick and thin. Mm-hmm. That'll continue. That's what's brought us to where we are in the positive sense. Far, far more people of color in positions of responsibility. What encourages me that's different now than I think five years ago is within corporations, and my view is narrow, much narrower than Ursula's, there's much greater awareness of the need for corporations to be involved in a systemic way in this issue. That's certainly true of Procter & Gamble. The sense of responsibility, which has been there to some degree right from the beginning, that the corporation and its people have a responsibility and opportunity to make a difference in issues that would involve voting, uh, housing, health care, and to do something about it. That, to me, is encouraging. One is just the recognition of the facts. I think more than ever, and I'm using Procter & Gamble as an example, men and women in the company look at the facts that when we have African-Americans join our company, they are every bit as qualified. They passed every test at the same level as white people. And in fact, they get to the first level at the same incidence, but then it stops. And one has to ask themselves, what is it within our own operation that is affecting that? And what it comes back to me, what it is, what we talked about. It's the formation of relationships, of putting people into positions where they can grow, maybe taking a bit of a risk. These facts are known. And obviously COVID-19 has revealed racial disparities if we needed more evidence of them in health, in lifespan, in access to good health, in the impact of housing, they're more revealed than ever. So the facts are even clearer than before to more people. Mm. Those are hopeful realities. The biggest challenge I feel is the one we've always faced, and that is we get bored. We go and we move on to some other subject. We don't stay focused. And there are a lot of reasons why we move on to other subjects because they come up and they're important. Some in the business will always be there. How are we going to ship the quota? How are we going to meet the profit target? Others will come up as COVID has. Now we've got an international crisis. Do we stay focused on carrying out the personal requirements? And I'm talking there about relationships, building relationships of the kind Verdon Jordan had with Ursula that enabled her in many ways, I think she'd say, I can't speak for her, uh, to be able to grow in the way she did. 
And I think the biggest impact I can have is having relationships, not just with African-Americans, but with other people who can make them better able to achieve their, what they want to achieve in life. And the other is we've got to deal with these issues systemically. That's a nice mechanical word, but these are systemic issues that need to be addressed in how are kids getting early childhood education? Where are they living? Where are they living? Where are they living? What's that neighborhood? What are they eating? Right. What's that neighborhood like? Is it violent? Is there are gunshots going off compared to the neighborhood where I live in Wyoming, Ohio? We don't hear gunshots, but you could go on to one subject after another, screening for the next job, willingness to promote. I know I've had a tendency in the past to look at an African-American, putting him, and it was a him then, into a job and feeling, are they ready? And the motivation was multiple. Part of it was the business, but more, I wouldn't want this person to fail. Well, I'll tell you, a lot of people put me in jobs. They would have had every right to wonder whether I could make it. That's the truth. And I believe in a couple of African-Americans who I was told probably aren't ready for this. And I said, I think they are. And they were. So it's a systemic issue, but it's, this is a mindset. It permeates everything. Everything. It's a mindset. This is a mindset issue. The last thing I'll talk about is this issue of decency. There's a lot to be said for just simple kindness. We can use a lot more kindness. And was Ursula said, decency. When I hear somebody described as being decent, I think I voted for Biden for many reasons. One, what was the alternative? But, but one would be, I think he's a decent man. Decent guy, exactly. He's a decent exactly. man. And, that, and I'll settle for decent. I also thought he's pretty experienced and he's proven But I that. agree with you. I agree with you, John, so much when, you, when nothing else matters or when everything else matters. I say all the time, would you leave your children to this person that you want somebody decent, not necessarily the guy with the most money, not necessarily the guy with the most power. Mm. You want somebody who is decent. Mm. And that's what, because leadership starts there, right? Leadership is not about the person with the most intellectual capacity always, or the most guns always, or the biggest dollars always. If it is, it's short-lived, right? Because we can see it in the Absolutely. history shows that. Absolutely. It's short-lived. What you count on character. is that you count on character benevolence. You count on decency. And we have chucked it in some ways. It's, but it's not lost. It's not lost. It's, it's in our heart still. It's in our we heart. Still, so we have, we, we have in, to pull almost it everybody. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's not lost. One thing about race and corporations that we come from a global, you know, seven billion people, seven and a half billion people, how do you change? In corporations, I think it's in many ways easier because I say this, corporations are benevolent dictatorships. <laughs> <laughs> they are that's, that's not- true. Right? With 401ks, with 401ks. No, with 401ks, and they are not democracies. I mean, people just don't come in and say, well, we're gonna actually start making horse whips instead of making cars. You, there is a structure, there is an set of expectations. Yeah. So you can manage your way to change faster than, if, than you can for society. Right? And you can set the tone faster. You and can you can set the tone faster. It's yeah. a control. So one of the things that I say a lot is that we absolutely must, like we do everything, manage, manage race, manage gender. We have targets for everything. We have a target for everything in companies. I ran one. John, you did too. Literally, how much toilet paper do we use? We know GNA down to the dollar. We should know 
we should know what, where we are vis-a-vis -vis our competitors, vis-a-vis -vis what good looks like in race and gender, representation, practices, whatever it is, training, advancement. opportunities, advancement in our company. We should have, tar in our companies, we should have targets that say, oh, just like anything else, we want to increase profit 20%, we want to increase representation. And then we should have strategies and tactics that get us from where we are. This is, it's like any other business problem. We have mm. to manage it. And I think it's amazing how we say, and by the way, what we'll find is you're right. There are not enough black engineers to hire. Oh, well then, like any problem, you would say, let's go back one, let's ask the next why. Remember the five whys, you have 10 why. The next why, oh, there's not enough graduating from colleges. Oh, maybe we should go work with the colleges. Oh, there's not enough graduating from high, prepared in high school. Oh, maybe we should go. So the, the more involved to John's point, that you become in your company and the solutions to the world's problems in your company, the more impactful that you'll be in solving the world's problems in the world, right? And that's why it's important that we actually have people who are concerned about voting rights mm. and concerned about neighborhoods and concerned systems, about education systems. Structure. Because otherwise I just don't understand what the hell we're there for. Yeah. Mean, what do we do? We just reap it all in, share yeah. it to the shareholders and then yeah. leave it everybody else to. So I think that there is a way companies have a massive impact here, can have a massive impact here, measure, expect, <laughs> celebrate success, you know, use failure as a way to learn for the future. This is the way that we manage everything and we have to do the same thing with race. So look at the leadership of companies, look at the leadership from a board perspective, from a C-suite perspective, women, brown and black people, gay and lesbian, whatever the heck it is, how much difference, if it's important, how much difference do you have? And mm. you look around and you see, and I love this, when we did the board diversity actions, they would say that, well, we have one. One. <laughs> we, we, we have one, yeah, we met, we met the target. And it's almost a, an undefendable, you can't argue with this, right? It's like, you're so basic, this is such a basic, bad statement. I don't know how to tell you it's a bad statement, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, you have one, but that's what we're trying to do, mm -hmm. right? That's not what we're trying to do. If what great looked like in this industry for this company at this time was a totally black female leadership team, and it was a short to give you a lot of money, guess what we would do? Mm -hmm. We'd have a totally, so we should, what's appropriate? Mm -hmm. Well, Ursula, since we're about to wrap, I want to give you the last word for our audience. What's one final challenge that you would give to the next generation of leaders in this space, in this action, the things they need to be looking at, thinking about and doing? Overall statement, nothing is inevitable. Mm. Nothing is inevitable, particularly in, in this sphere, right? Taxes and death may be other two inevitable <laughs> things. Besides that, we can change things. We can improve we can improve not only our lives, but other people's lives. We can make great corporations with a lot of people involved. It requires that we act. It requires that we have decency and that we act. It, somebody else, people say it all the time, well, if they are not doing it, I keep saying, who's they? They is us, there's not a they. So it is, nothing is inevitable on race, gender, ethnicity, poverty, education, war, nothing is inevitable. Humans can actually change it. We have to work for the good. It's not just going to happen. We have to work for the good. Well, Ursula, I, I feel like I could spend hours talking to both you and John. And, and John, as you've said, this is 
this is not a one and done conversation. This is a conversation we need to be having with each other, with people that look and think and have different experiences from us. I just want to thank you so much for both leading, thinking in this space and challenging all of us. This is first of many conversations I know we'll be having here. So thank you both. Thank you. Thanks, Ursula. Good to be with you. Mr. Pepper, thank you. It's so good to be with you. I just make me cry sometimes. Just decent and good you are. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. You can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.